Senior executives know that to stay on top of your game, you need to constantly challenge and develop yourself. IMI's new senior executive experience delivers future-focused learning. Gain invaluable tools and insights in areas like organisation resilience and digital transformation to shape the future of your organisation. Visit imi.ie for details. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Margit Takach, who is a senior associate faculty member here at the IMI and a seasoned change management consultant and business owner with a wealth of experience gained from transformational programs implemented around the world over two decades. In her recently launched book, Change Matters, through narrative storytelling, Margit invites change leaders and practitioners to reflect on their wisdom and tackle different challenges at the workplace, and she helps to translate abstract concepts into tangible actions. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about change. So over to you, Magit. Could you tell us a bit about how you got into the world of change management? Thank you very much, Farah, for having me at the IMI Talking Leadership podcast today. How did I get into change management? It started probably about 20 years ago when I was in an international organization, a student organization, where basically we had a bunch of volunteers really dedicating their time to the mission of the organization, arranging different relationships with corporate organizations, student teams, and really trying to build collaborations. Now there, as volunteers, there was no payment involved. The only way we could really inspire them is by giving them development opportunities. But it did not mean there was no resistance. It was basically maybe often not visible. And we did what we could in terms of having a common sense of finding out what holds people back. Um, but what we realized is that as I started working in the corporate sector as well, that the same kind of emotional reactions appear almost wherever you are. And it fascinated me. It was in 2007 that for the first time I attended a formalized change management training. I was living at the time in Singapore and this program was organized by a master trainer in the field. And we had this four day long workshop training in Bangkok. And I remember sitting there looking at this lady, telling us about the methodology she was to teach us, telling us the stories of how she has worked with others to overcome resistance. And I had an epiphany. I sat there and I remember feeling, one day I want to do what she does. I want to master this field. I want to experience the pros and cons of uh, the approaches we talk about. And uh, I want to grow into being a person who can facilitate and catalyze changes. That's my short story of getting into the field. That's really interesting. Thanks so much, Bagheed, for telling us about that. And now, according to a survey by Corn Ferry, only 54% of employees feel that their organization is effective in managing change. And about 70% report feeling overwhelmed by the amount of changes that are occurring within their organization. So can you tell us a bit about the concept of change fatigue and what leaders can do to ensure that their staff and their team members are not overwhelmed by change within the organization? 
I love that you bring in some of these startling statistics, Farah, because when we talk about change fatigue and the feeling of being overwhelmed, people say, yes, yes, we do it. Leaders say, yes, we do have it. But until we put a finger, a pulse on uh, really on the situation, it's hard to have a constructive dialogue about what change fatigue is and what we can do about it. If I want to simplify the terminology change fatigue, I would say it's a sense of frustration, exhaustion, when people are constantly exposed to changes. And those can be changes in the workplace, like changing the way we manage processes, the systems we use, changing the organization structure, or simply the leaders changing. And these constant impasses of needing to adjust to a new reality just tires people out. And as a, as a result, it basically causes lack of motivation, a decreased productivity, and people are less engaged. And obviously, that means that there would be a higher attrition, turnover, and burnout as well. When I have the chance to talk about change fatigue in a constructive manner with leaders, we often look at some of the best practices of what they can do. And my first advice is always pace the change. Pace the change because you as leaders, you have to decide which one is really fundamental out of all the changes you and your organization could do. What are the ones that you would like to prioritize and give them adequate time? Now, I have worked with leaders and teams where they said we have so much demand to upgrade our way of working and really improve our service offering that we have several changes we have to do at the same time. And I think that's the way of life, especially in a fast changing world. But then I would say pace the change and connect the changes. One of the recent um books that was published called uh, Leading Change Successfully was talking about how small incremental changes, small in, uh, disconnected changes can tire people out more than big cross-cultural uh, changes. And what it tells me is that people want to see, even if there are small changes, they want to see what's the big picture. So pace the change refers to that. Give them an umbrella theme, something that will connect the dots together. So it's understandable why there are different changes coming their way. The second one is that I believe uh, that it's common sense with the structure when we talk about change leadership. And one of the things you have to do as leaders is to provide support. When people are feeling change fatigue, provide support, such as a little bit of your time. I know there are lots of reports, lots of very important meetings, but dedicate some time to find out how they feel, connect with them, strengthen that rapport to understand what holds them back. And make sure that the support also means they can get training, they can get coaching, feedback, and the right information. So after pacing the change and providing support, communicating, it's always a, a buzzword, I know, but I would say if there is change fatigue, my first advice would be to communicate the why and the what. Don't worry about the when and how just yet communicate why we have to change and what is changing and once people get through that initial shock surprise denial you can actually start working with them on the details if I wanted to pick just one more it would be to involve some key people um, people who can give you feedback it's a bit like a little bit of a pulse check 
people that can tell you what the rest of the employees feel and think who can help you really see the change readiness of your organization and make sure that you celebrate as quick successes, quick wins and milestones. So to recap is really pace the change, provide support, communicate the why and the what, especially at the beginning, involve people and make sure they see that you appreciate the efforts made. Thanks very much, Margit. And now that we've spoken a bit about the overwhelm and the change fatigue that people can experience at the start of a change, I want to move on to actually embedding the change. And you say that leaders need to use common sense with a structure in order to successfully embed change within their organizations. Can you tell us a bit about what that means and give us some examples? Absolutely. When it comes to common sense with the structure, that's my definition for change management and change leadership, because I fundamentally believe that all of us human have this intuition, this common sense to realize that resistance is human, it's inevitable. It's a matter of taking the time and really human approach to tackle those. It is common sense, but it isn't common practice. So when you talk to leaders one-on-one -on -one or even in a in a confidential setting, they would say, yes, we know people are resisting. They acknowledge it, but very often there is no time or focus dedicated to tackle that. And that's where common practice needs to become the, the way forward when they bring it to their normal modus operandi. I also feel that a lot of people associate change management and leadership with two things, which is training, doing workshops and communications. I'm exaggerating that having posters everywhere. And that is not what change management is to me. Um, to me, change management and leadership is really a methodology and framework that looks at how can I get higher adaptation of the new ways of working, higher utilization and proficiency in the ways we have to work in the future? So to me, fundamentally, it means you do stakeholder management, relationship management. You find out what are the concerns, the needs. And once you know that, you can actually assess what are the needs for training and communication and resistance management. So the first fundamental part is stakeholder management and relationship management. And the training and communication is more the visible side. It does have to be, however, measured, and that's a huge challenge in the field, coming up with KPIs, tracking those and reinforcing those. But I would say these are the fundamental pillars of common sense with a structure. That's really, really interesting. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are involved in change projects within their organizations, and they can take a lot of tips from that when they're going off to start embedding those strategies. So now I want to get a little bit more specific. Would you be able to tell us about a couple of examples of organizations who took a change project and did it really, really well, applying some of the elements of the frameworks that we've been speaking about? Absolutely. I think there are always yes and no's when it comes to picking a, um, an organization to benchmark from. I'd like to I'd like to share maybe three of those that I, I like quoting. The first one would be Apple. I, I always associate this organization with innovative products and continuously adapting to changing trends and even making the trends with the products they are producing. What I admire in Apple is the strong sense of why and purpose. 
they don't look at what we are selling, but they look at why we are doing what we do. And that strong sense of purpose is definitely something that in the change world we are advocating as a key enabler for success. The second one is Toyota. I had the chance to work in the Lean Six Sigma world for a couple of years and work with a lot of experts in the field. And as we got into more and more examples, um, as we looked at case studies and approaches from Toyota itself, we looked at the lean approach to manufacturing and continuous improvement. I realized that's also change management in a beautiful way. And what Toyota is teaching and preaching is that you have to focus on the needs and perspectives of the employees and the customers. So the needs and the perspectives of the employees and the customers. And that's when you can continuously improve. And that's a learning that I think any organization can take with them. The third one after Apple and Toyota would be my former organization, DHL. I had the chance to work there for several years. And um, similarly to General Electric, to GE, DHL chose the path of building their own in-house change management methodology, developed their own change management methodology based on good practices and benchmarks. And my take on that was that there are lots of good practices frameworks out there in the world and <laughs> just get on Google or ask a consulting company. But if you're able to really adjust it to your company's needs, the culture, the way they work, it would click much better. So there was a group-wide approach for managing change to dealing with resistance. There was an integration of that approach with different project management methodologies used and it was linked to the culture change program that was going on at the time. Again, it was connected. It was not a separate extra thing. It was something that could enable the overall changes, transformations going on in the organization. And something that I believe made this organization particularly good at change is that they looked at how they can um, build a practitioner community, train selected people from around the world, um, make sure that they attend the fundamental workshop, learn the tools and techniques, but also apply it. And six months after those trainings, they had to present it on a certification event to show what impact they had. So there was a methodology, but also there was a way to track the impact they, these people, these selected practitioners had. So this multiplication is something that I would say that um, DHL has been doing very well. Thanks very much, Magit. It's very interesting to hear about these different kinds of changes that organizations like Apple and Toyota and DHL are putting into place. Because when I think about change, I always think about something like digital change, moving to new technologies. And I think that's just me with my marketing hat on thinking about you know, adopting automation processes and that sort of thing. But there are a lot of different kinds of changes that an organization can go through. And I think that one of the most dramatic changes that leaders might face is laying off employees or, you know, telling someone that your job no longer exists. Mm -hmm. So are there any particular ways that leaders can handle people's reactions with some kind of compassion? Absolutely. And at the beginning of our podcast, you kindly mentioned my book, Change Matters. It's really a compilation of stories from different parts of the world where I had the chance to live and work. And one of the chapters is dedicated exactly to this, to redundancies and how to manage it. 
And I'd like to just give you a little insight to that. So in the UK at the time, there was a major transformation program in finance. And because of the aftermath of the global recession, there was a need to offshore and outsource certain transactional activities from the high-priced location of the UK to Chennai, India. And needless to say, when this was announced in that organization, there was a huge resistance, understandably, because offshoring and outsourcing more often than not meant people losing their jobs, redundancies. And the CFO at the time was extremely intelligent, emotionally and intellectually as well. And what she told me is that um, she was against the idea at first, but there was a global mandate. It's my way or the highway. So she knew she had to do, uh, carry this out. She had a team of six to seven uh, people in the senior management team. Seventh was the project manager who was leading this change itself. And in the same year, in January, they received the global award for being the best performing finance team. And imagine as around June, we started talking, she said, I just have a couple of months and I have to let go 80% of my people. Out of 80 people, 64, we have to say goodbye. And whilst we're talking about how to manage this compassionately, I just want to acknowledge how her leadership team was totally struck. They did not want to do this and they were in a checkmate situation. If they were not to do it, they would be let go as well. So it was a really difficult checkmate situation for them to manage. And the CFO said, I need to see how we can be the face for the change, because if we are not the face for the change to the people working with us, it's going to be a disaster. So the first thing that I find really important is to make sure there is active and visible executive sponsorship behind any change, just like ProSci, the benchmarking organization advocates it. And the CFO said, I'm fully behind this and I know it's difficult. And I want to acknowledge that my leaders reporting to me have an emotional curve that they are going through and it's normal to deny and resist but I need to get them out of this deep um, emotional and motivational situation because we need to be able to manage this really well. So the first thing we did is actually not talking about the, the people who are let go, talking about the leaders. They had to be prepared to be face the change. And what we said, okay, we need to see what holds them back. We had to address their concerns. And funnily enough, three out of the six direct reports were close to retirement. And they really wanted to finish on a high a few months before they were celebrating absolutely excellent performance. And now they are asked to tell people that they are fired. So we needed to tackle their emotional reactions. And then once it was legally possible, we had to come up with um, transparent communication and transparent. I'm using this with a bit of a caveat because you can communicate as soon as legally it's possible to communicate different things in the case of redundancies. But we knew we had to deal with the rumor mill. If that was going out of control, that would really be a big problem. And we had to acknowledge fears and concerns. So imagine there, I would say to other leaders as well, if you have to launch any redundancies, have a town hall meeting, something where there is there is an opportunity for the top leaders to say why, what, and when is going to happen. Right after that, have team meetings 
so that you can say this is what it means for our meeting and on this very same day possibly in the very same morning or afternoon have individual meetings so you minimize people staying in that limbo that they have been already this communication is a buzzword but i think doing this in this sequence and doing it promptly building on one another is super important because this is inevitable and it's not it's, it's not, no one's happy about being fired. And the CFO also said, we have to have a unified front. I'm not gonna show them that I'm happy about letting people go. It is difficult for me, for all of us to do that, but we have to do it. And this human connection is super important to show the empathy, no positive spin around it. And then the next next phase be said okay we need to outline what kind of support we can give them is the endorsement the reference letters the counseling the helping with the job hunting and ultimately it's about managing the whole redundancies with respect and integrity when i have a group of leaders who say but we don't exactly know what it means I actually put them into a somewhat uncomfortable situation and ask them, if you were the one to be let go, how would you like to be told? And once they walk in the shoes of the people who are let go, in this case, in the UK, 64 people, it already helped them really manage this with more impact and, and integrity. One more thing I want to highlight in redundancy is that we often focus on those people who lose their jobs and the impact is massive on them. But those who stay, in this case, it was 16 people, those who stay, they also suffer. And we call that a survival guilt. Why did I survive and my teammates and friends didn't? And if we as leaders don't work on the survival guilt, the productivity and motivation will equally drop there. So we always have to look at all of the people, not just those who are made redundant. Thank you so much, Margit. I think there are some hugely practical tips within that advice that you've given that leaders can actually take away and implement if they do find themselves in that unfortunate situation. Now, to end off, I do want to go back to your book that you've written called Change Matters. If you could tell us how people can get hold of your book if they're looking for it. Thank you very much for uh, mentioning my book, Change Matters. It will come out on Amazon in June. And the title is Change Matters, Stories About Taming the Corporate Jungle and Leading Transformations. It's, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's a book that compiles 10 stories which are somewhat personal and somewhat business in nature with the intention that the readers would be invited to look at the stories, imagine themselves in those situations and build on their own inner wisdom to see how they would have tackled those emotional resistance situations if they were me. And at the end of each chapter, there will be some key learning points, recommendations and insights. Margit, thank you so much for joining us today on the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. And thank you to everyone for listening. You can follow us on SoundCloud or on your preferred podcast provider to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Until next time.